So, you guys are standing. That's good. Let's recite our verse for the month. So, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Hebrews 10, 35. Awesome. You may be seated. Thank you. If uh, you haven't yet uh, grabbed some of the resources that we have in the back for memorizing our our monthly verse, I encourage you to do that. Um, I think it's been an awesome tool for our church, one that we'll continue to use for a very long time. Uh, Rashad Bateman. Rashad Bateman grew up in Tifton, Georgia, one of the poorest and most dangerous cities in the southeast. When he was too young to even remember, his mother married a man who would become a raging alcoholic. And for years, this man physically and verbally abused LaShonda Cromer, his mother, oftentimes with Rashad and his brothers helplessly watching um, and screaming for him to stop. And it wasn't until evidence was too much and too incriminating for the police to not do anything that she was finally set free from his reign of terror. Rashad watched not only as his mother was beaten, but also as she worked multiple jobs tirelessly, including 12-hour overnight shifts in order to barely make ends meet for their family, working all the time in order to provide. So Rashad decided that he was going to make a future not only for himself, but also for his mother. From a very early age, he decided, I am going to be in the NFL. At the age of seven, Bateman would sit in the living room and watch football on TV, and then he'd go outside into the backyard with his brothers, and he would imitate the moves of all the receivers that he'd watched. He'd set up cone drills for himself. He'd run routes for hours. Every night, he slept in bed with a football. The problem was that by the time he reached high school, he was way too small to be given a shot to even play. At 5'8", 145 pounds, Bateman sat on the bench until his junior year when the starter in front of him got injured. Finally, in his junior season, he got his first shot. And when he got that first shot, he took full advantage. As one theologian has wisely told us, you only get one shot, do not miss your chance to blow. Um, He took full advantage of this and played his way into a starting spot, even when the starter uh, was healthy. By the end of his junior year, he had one offer from a D1 school, Minnesota. And that one offer he committed to right away. By the end of his senior year, he was a nationally coveted recruit with everybody seeking after him. D1 teams across the country. But he honored his commitment and played three years at Minnesota. And in that time, he set himself as the 12th best receiver in school history in terms of yards and touchdowns, in spite of the fact that he played one season fewer. And in so doing, he earned himself a first-round evaluation in the 2021 NFL Draft and was selected 26th overall by the Baltimore Ravens, making his... NFL childhood dream come true. For that effort, he was awarded a 12 uh, I'm sorry, a 4-year contract worth 12.6 million dollars. 6 and a half million dollars as a signing bonus. And do you know what he did with his very first paycheck? As soon as it hit the bank, he did exactly what he said he would do with it when he was interviewed 
weeks before. When he was asked, he and all the other rookies, when they were asked, what are you going to do with your first paycheck? He answered differently than the other rookies. Most of those guys said things like, I'm going to buy myself a car. I'm going to buy myself a truck. I'm going to invest. I'm going to save. I haven't really decided yet. For Bateman, the answer came very quick. He said, I'm definitely buying my mom a house. And as soon as the check hit the bank, that's exactly what he did. In a video that he posted to Instagram, Bateman ushers his mom into this beautiful two-story brick home, saying, dreams become reality. Welcome home, Mama. I love you. Months later, in November, on his birthday, he gave his mom a brand new BMW to park in her garage. She is now very happily retired. Stories like this are nothing new or unique. Every single year, lots of rookies in professional sports do similar things. So many of them who come from backgrounds like Bateman's reward their parents with a comfortable retirement. Many stories share comparable elements with players setting this goal early in life, years before it would ever come, and then working tirelessly to reach that goal weeping tears of joy when it comes true, and then spending the first check on mama. Uh, Cam Chancellor drove his mother to a neighborhood after he got his signing bonus and showed her a white Lexus with a bow on it. Ecstatic, she tried to open the door to the car, but it was locked, and he said, oh, the owner of this house has the keys. And so he walked her in, And the whole family was there in the house waiting to yell, surprise, welcome home. Or take Fred Jackson. His story is a pretty crazy one. When he was 12, he told his mother that he would be going to the NFL. But then he never started a single game in high school. After high school, he played at D3 College, Coe College. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Coe College. None of us. After that, he played arena football. Then he played in NFL Europe. But after all those years, he was finally awarded a contract with the Buffalo Bills. He then called his mom and told her that he wanted her to come to a friend's house to celebrate. And so she went over to the friend's house. But as she walked through this house, she noticed that it was full of her family pictures. Only then did she realize, oh, this house is mine. Um, DJ Fluker and his family had their home destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. And they spent part of his sophomore year sleeping in their car. When he signed his contract with the San Diego Chargers, he bought his mom a 3,000 square foot house. Amari Cooper's mom didn't own a car at all, and their family lived in the projects. He says he remembers one time when She asked him to go to the grocery store with her, and he declined. But then he remembered that she came home after walking three miles there and back without any help, and the grocery bags had left marks on her arms from carrying them so far. So when he signed with the Dallas Cowboys, his first purchase was a giant home and a beautiful new Range Rover for his mother. These stories go on and on. In every one of them, we have a young man who remembers where he came from 
and giving the first of his payout to the person who got him where he is now. And I'm pretty sure they all have a giant family party in the brand new crib. Though I'm confident that probably none of them used this term at the time, each one of these athletes in these situations was modeling the feast of first fruits. They were taking the first of their bounty and offering back with it in remembrance and gratitude for the journey that led them to that point. And doing so makes sense, right? Can you imagine if these guys had purchased lavish homes and cars for themselves and then got their mom a used Honda Accord? That would be crazy, right? If your mom and now your son is living large and he's just gotten you a used Honda Accord with 150,000 miles on it, you'd probably be like, thanks, I guess. What we'll see in scripture, though, is that that's really not that uncommon because we do that sort of thing all the time. Instead of giving God the first and the best of the bounty that he has given us, we often give him the leftovers of what remains after we've consumed the rest for ourselves. Instead, we should be showing our gratitude and faith to God by giving him a Range Rover right off the top. So, today, we're continuing along in our series, Let's Eat, by looking at the Feast of first fruits. We're in this series looking at how the Feast of the Old Testament point us forward to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, let's look at the next feast, the Feast of first fruits. Turn in the scriptures to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23 We'll be looking at verses 9 through 14. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The words will be behind me on the screen. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma, and the drink offering with it shall be wine, a fourth of a hin. And you shall neither eat bread nor grain parched or fresh until this same day. Until you have brought the offering of your God, it is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So, this is a brief introduction to the Feast of First Fruits, but there are other places in Scripture that give a little bit more detail. So, I'd like us to also look at Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 through 11. Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 through 11, says this. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and have taken possession of it, and live in it, you shall take some of the first of the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, 
I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God, saying, A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God, and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you, and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. So, here in Deuteronomy, where it gives us a bit more detail, giving the best to God is directly tied to what he did to set you and your people free to condense down what the Israelites were to speak over this offering was to say, my people were enslaved, God performed miracles to free us, and then brought us to this incredible land that is filled with blessings. Therefore, out of remembrance of all that he did, let me give him my first and my best. So, this is the big idea that we'll spend some time breaking down. We are to give God our first and our best, and we're to do that for our own good, in remembrance of how he has freed us and blessed us, and in faithful anticipation of the blessings to come. Let me say that one more time. We are to give our first and our best to God, to do so for our own good, in remembrance of how he's freed us and how he's blessed us, and in faithful anticipation of his blessings to come. So if you're taking notes, here is point number one. We give God our best. I'm sorry, we give God our first because we have it in the first place. We give God our first because we have it in the first place. Now there's a couple of things in this story that are present that we're going to continue to come back to. And that is that the Israelites were freed from their slavery in Egypt and they were brought, uh, I'm sorry, and they were on their way into the promised land. A land that it says is flowing with milk and honey. I love that imagery, right? A land flowing with milk and honey. It sounds to me like a cereal commercial, doesn't it? Sounds like what you would find on the back of a cereal box, right? Picture the back of a cereal box, a cartoon picture of a beautiful landscape with mountains, and there's waterfalls of milk and honey, and probably kids somewhere playing with a happy animal mascot, and probably a word search in a maze somewhere, right? It's all part of a balanced breakfast. This is the image that comes to mind 
when I think of a land flowing with milk and honey. What it's trying to illustrate is that this is going to be a land that is filled with abundance. Earlier in Deuteronomy, in chapter 6, this land, it says, will have great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. This was a land that had been promised to them for hundreds of years. Promises made and remade to their forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now, finally, hundreds of years later, they're finally going to be able to see that promise. And where is it that they've just come from? Well, they've just come from slavery, from oppression, from toil, immeasurably worse than anything that we could have ever experienced. The athletes that we talked about at the beginning had it hard coming up, but these people in Israel were in oppression from slave masters. They were slaves to a foreign nation for generations and generations, forced into hard labor. And so, the Feast of first fruits was instituted to celebrate what God had done for the people. It was their way of saying, started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. There is an explicitly stated remembrance that's given in this passage in Deuteronomy. Look again at verses 9 through 11. This Israelite bringing the offering says, He brought us into this land a land flowing with milk and honey. Now behold, I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, has given to me. So in this, the people are recognizing what God has done for them. They are celebrating what God has done for them. And they're taking their first paycheck and they're spending it on God in gratitude for where they are now. And this was a command that was for the Israelites, but the command to remember and to celebrate applies to all of us in a spiritual sense, right? We ought to be continually reminding ourselves of the way that God has set us free from the shackles of sin. Do we consider that often enough? Or are we so used to it? Have we so, so grown accustomed to the gospel that we forget that we were literal slaves to sin, bound for hell and judgment, dead in our transgressions and our thinking, nothing we could do to earn the favor of God. We were in a desperate situation which we could not ourselves get out of. The only way that we could ever be free was through the work of a gracious, loving Savior. That is where we were. For those of us in Christ, that's our past. If you are not in Christ, that's where you still are right now. But we don't often consider just how bad we had it. Born into death, in desperate need of the mercy of God. And so, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, he told the disciples, do this in remembrance of me. Because he knew that they would need 
consistent reminders. He knew that they would need to remind themselves in a regular rhythm or else they would forget. Is that not true of us as well? We need reminders too. The Israelites, we read this throughout the Old Testament, the the people had a tremendous knack for forgetting everything that God had done. Even though they're given constant reminders of his goodness. Right? They've seen miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet, they still forget. They seem to have the memory capacity of Dory. Right? So God has to keep the truth ever before them. All the time. He has to put in front of them every single moment. P. Sherman, 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney. Over and over and over. And one of the ways that he does that is by giving them a rhythm to repeat, to recite, to remember. Repeating that address over and over and over. Otherwise, those things are bound to fade into amnesia. We need to understand something very clearly. When we look at this passage and and we see that this is a command from God, and and we do this so often with commands. We we view commands as being arbitrary. We, We view commands as being just rules that God felt like making up because, well, this seems like a good rule to have, and if you don't follow it, ah. And yes, there is judgment for not obeying commands, but here's what we need to, to recognize. God doesn't tell his people to give their first and their best because he needs it. It's because they need it. He doesn't tell them, give me your first and your best because I need it. He says, give me your first and your best because you need it. This is for your good. If they don't maintain a grasp constantly on how he has blessed them, freed them, showed them grace, and promised them a good future, it is only a matter of time before they set their worship on something else. Um, Looking at a passage that I I mentioned a few moments ago in Deuteronomy chapter 6 about cities that you didn't build and cisterns that you didn't dig and all of that, there's uh, some additional words spoken. I didn't put this on the screen, Eli. Don't worry about it. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says, Houses full of good things that you didn't fill, and cisterns that you didn't dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. It says this, When you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. By his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. When we go down to verse 20, it says this. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? A good question, right? Your son comes to you and says, Dad, why did God give us these commands? Why did God give us these rules? Why why did he set up these feasts? Why did he give us these rhythms? Then you shall say to your son, Ah, God felt like it. It doesn't really mean anything. 
No, it says, Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And then he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And the Lord has commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteousness for us, for careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. You see how explicitly that is stated in verse 24. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord for our good. For our good. For our good always. We're commanded to do these things for our good. Because God knows our hearts. He knows how easy it is to forget what he has done for us. And so he establishes these rhythms to remind us over and over and over. We talked in the first week of this series about how the word feast is the Hebrew word muadim. And this word muadim means appointed time. This is a rhythm, a repeated rhythm. Remember, 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 remember. These things are experiential analogies. They're, they're tangible things, things that we can put our hands on, that we can taste and smell and see to keep the story ever before us. Because when we don't keep the story ever before us, we start to do awful things. I want to show you what this looks like with another story in Scripture. Here's point number two. A gift of what is first is an act of faith in what's next. A gift of what is first is an act of faith in what is next. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you up front that the following observation is not necessarily definitive, but I do believe that it fits given the context. So, if you disagree with this conclusion... That is fine. Totally cool if you disagree with me. Please share your disagreements with Daryl at the end of the sermon. Uh, So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. I don't remember if I put this in there, did I? No, he says no. All right. You're going to have to use your own Bible for this. Or your own device, whatever. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. It says, now Adam and Eve, I'm sorry, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock And of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. 
The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So, we've looked at this story in Scripture before, a couple of times, but what I'd like to do this time is use the Feast of First Fruits as an overlay onto this story. Now, this is not my creative way of reading something into the text that isn't there, but rather to see the foreshadowing that is present. You see, Scripture is consistent in its patterns, in its foreshadowings. And so when there are blanks in a story that we have to fill in, when there's reading between the lines that we have to do, the best way to read between the lines, the best way to fill in the blanks, is to take the rest of the canon of Scripture and lay it over, knowing that it is a consistent story that does not contradict. Oftentimes there are things that we can point forward to um, in, in each of these stories. So, keep your finger there and then go back to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, this time remembering what we just read in Genesis. says, the, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this day. Until you have brought the offering of your God, it is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So, to break that down, the offering given in the Feast of first fruits is a spotless lamb and the first fruits of the grain harvest. Spotless lamb and the first fruits of the grain harvest. What do we have Cain and Abel bringing to God? A choice lamb and a produce offering. Could this be a foreshadowing to the feast of first fruits? I think perhaps it could. Now, we know that whatever is happening in Genesis chapter 4, we know that it's not just random, right? Obviously, we have to ask the question how did Cain and Abel know? to sacrifice anything at all, when the sacrificial laws don't come until much later in in Leviticus? Well, the obvious answer has to be that God communicated these things directly to Adam and to his family, much like he does with so many of the other figures in the Old Testament. Because this sort of thing happens over and over and over in the Old Testament, right? We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all offering animal and produce sacrifices to the Lord. We find Job, who chronologically, that's the oldest book in the Bible, offering sacrifices on behalf of his children to atone for their sin. 
rewind a little bit further and we find Noah in Genesis chapter 7 through 9, not only with a very clear understanding of the sacrificial system, but also instructions from God to follow it. In chapter 8, when the flood subsides and he's starting over, uh, Genesis 8.20 says that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So not only is there a sense of offering, there's also a sense of what is clean and unclean. Before any of those things were written by Moses, these had to have been communicated by God. Rewind further into chapter 7, and we find God commanding Noah to take seven pairs of all clean animals onto the ark. Obviously, there's some understanding of what a clean animal and an unclean animal is. God had to have told him. Noah clearly knew the substitutionary system. Rewind even further into Genesis chapter 3, and we find what? God making an animal sacrifice in order to cover Adam and Eve after their sin. So that means prior to Moses, all the way back to Adam and Eve, there is a clear understanding given by God himself about atonement and sacrifice, all of which is going to point ultimately forward to Jesus. The story never changes. The story is always consistent, always the same. And when we understand that we can take those later passages and go, ah, I see the foreshadowings here in these passages, that fills in a lot of those blanks. So in this story in Genesis chapter 4, we find a clue that Cain and Abel obviously had direction from God and knew the right way and the wrong way to sacrifice. And that clue is in verse 7. Genesis 4, 7. God speaking to Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Some of your translations put that statement as, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? This is a hypothetical question. God is saying to him, um, you know what to do, and I'm inviting you to do it. This is not some random scene where Cain and Abel put their heads together and go, hey, let's do something that's never been done before. Let's bring an offering to God. Oh yeah, that's a great idea. Let's, that, that sounds good. Let's, let's do that. No, this is something that God has communicated. We can't do that with this story and make it random any more than we can with the other many examples of sacrifices being made throughout the early Old Testament. God has already taught them what sacrifice was supposed to signify. And it's for everybody else later on that he fills in those blanks. Because when we get to Moses... And we put that in, a, in, in its historical context. Let's not forget when this is happening. When God speaks the laws to the people through Moses, he is talking to a group of people that have been separated from the word for hundreds of years. These are people who grew up in a foreign land, separated from the people, uh, from, from the word of God. Okay? They have not heard it. God had been communicating directly to individuals and their families like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for hundreds of years prior to Egypt. Now the people are in Egypt and they've grown and they've multiplied, separated from all of that. 
So God then tells them the things that their ancestors already knew directly from him. They needed to hear it for the first time. Their ancestors did not. So again, using Leviticus 23 as an overlay of this story in Genesis 4, remember that the point of bringing first fruits was thanking God for his blessings as well as trusting him for future provision. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for first fruits is bikurim. And that word bikurim means promise to come. To bring God a first fruit offering was bringing God what is recognized as a promise to come. This is a promise of the harvest. To give God your first and best was an act of trusting in his promise that he was going to provide all that you need. Remember, this is an agrarian society. Giving the first and best of one's crops is a pretty risky thing to do because there's not a promise that there's going to be more crops after that. So it's saying to God, I'm bringing this to you first, trusting in your promise of what is to come. That is a bikurim, a promise of, to, uh, of what's to come. In other words, what that means is, this is an offering of faith. The, the Feast of first fruits is celebrating an offering of faith. Now in this story, we see that Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's was not. And we have to ask why. Why was Abel's offering accepted and Cain's was not? It's not explicitly stated here. But we do find a clue later on in Scripture in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 in the Hall of Faith says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is a belief in what is yet to come. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So in three different ways, we see that faith is belief in the promise of what's to come. And Abel is specifically pointed to by the author of Hebrews to say his offering was out of faith, out of trust. He says Abel brought a bikurim. Cain did not. Cain spent his signing bonus on a house and a car for himself, and he brought the Lord a used Honda Accord with 150,000 miles on it. Cain did not bring a first fruit offering. This is an intentional contrast that's given to us in the text. By saying Abel did one thing and not saying that Cain did it, this is intentionally showing us that Cain's offering was not one out of faith. Again, placing this in context, we have to ask the question, what does this scene follow? Well, this scene follows the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And what happened in the fall? 
Well, in the fall, Adam and Eve did not trust that God was giving him their best. His best, I should say. Adam and Eve did not trust that God was giving him his best. Rather than offering their best to God, they took from God what wasn't theirs. They show a tremendous lack of faith. Now Cain, a chapter later, shows that same lack of faith, not believing it worth it to offer God the first fruits of his harvest. What he brings is an offering of obligation. Even though he clearly knows, according to verse 7, what is well to do. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project contrasts Abel with his parents Adam and Eve, saying, Unlike Adam and Eve, who did not trust God, and so they took from him what wasn't theirs, Abel is the first figure in the Bible to trust God by giving him the best of what is his. So Adam and Eve don't trust. Adam and Eve don't have faith. They take. Abel sets the first example of someone who trusts in God's promises and brings God his best, his first. These are intentionally contrasted. So in this, we see two very different responses to what God has given. An offering of joy and faith and an offering of obligation. An offering of obligation is what happens when we lose gratitude in remembrance of what God has given. And when we lose that gratitude, when we begin to just follow out of obligation and habit, it is only a matter of time before we start taking instead of giving. Before we start destroying instead of enjoying. Where we start killing instead of building. A religion of ritual and empty obligation leads to death. Literally, though, Adam and Eve took from God and they killed everyone in the process. Cain offers out of obligation and one verse later, he takes Abel's life. The Israelites that we talked about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy They are in the desert and they forget God's goodness. And what do they do? They plot to kill Moses so that they can go back to Egypt. A lack of faith leads to loss of life, period. A lack of faith leads to loss of life. To repeat what I said earlier, God doesn't tell the people to give their first and the best because he needs it. He tells them because he knows they need it. If they don't maintain a grasp on how he has blessed them, freed them, and showed them grace, and promised them a good future, it's only a matter of time before somebody's life gets ruined. It's just the way it works. We have to keep our focus on God's blessings, both past and future. Because unlike Adam and Eve, Unlike Cain, unlike the Israelites, we have to see that we're not just acknowledging that God has blessed us and freed us. We're also believing that the best is yet to come. It's both. If we view sacrifice to God as something that we're losing, well, then we're not seeing it as an investment, as a belief in a promise. 
in giving the first fruits, we're saying, we believe that you are going to give us abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. This offering of first fruits is not just a past-focused offering, though it is, it's also future-focused, just like the Passover. We talked about how the Passover is both remembrance and a proclamation. I am remembering what Christ has done, and I'm proclaiming what he is going to do in the future. Because it's important, again, historically to set context. It's important to note when the Israelites are given the command to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. You're like, Leviticus, duh. Yes. But historically, what is the setting? Well, let me read Leviticus 23, verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest. There's a detail there that we skip over pretty easily that's very, very important. Okay? When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest. When I bring you and you reap. So where are they right now? They haven't gotten to the land yet. Right now, they're in the desert. They haven't arrived in the promised land. So this command that he's given them is in anticipation of where they're going to be in the future. He's giving the command now, and so it's a command and it's a promise. He's speaking a promise to them. When you come into the land that I'm going to give you, And you reap its harvest. I promise you're going to get into the land and you're going to reap a harvest. This is a promise that they are going to reap abundant blessing. The command is that they're going to bring the first fruits. But the promise is going to be that they're going to be in a place soon where they're going to be able to harvest. A land flowing with milk and honey and word searches and mazes on the sides of the mountains. A promised home. A land of their own. Well, they'll have homes and pastures for their flocks and vineyards and groves of trees and fields. And God's saying, remember when you get there to bring the best of what I haven't yet given you. When God gives this command, it's already an anticipation for the future. When he gives it, it is already spoken in a future tense. It's anticipating what the future will be. In the very giving of the command, it's an expression of faith. That which is not yet. And if I'm correct, there have been foreshadowings of this expression since the very first chapters of the book. It was always pointing forward. From the very beginning, always pointing forward. But not just pointing forward to the Israelites being in the promised land. It's always been pointing forward to the ultimate fulfillment of the true first fruits. Jesus himself. What we've covered so far in this series is the fascinating ways that these feasts point to Christ. He was the Passover lamb, sacrificed to covered 
cover us with his blood. When he was buried after giving his body, that took place during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you, this bread. But then look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. This is so cool, you guys. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23. Paul says this. But if in fact Christ has been raised, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by man death came, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who long to Christ. The Apostle Paul looks at Christ and he says, He is the firstfruits of the resurrection. Now there is a fascinating double fulfillment that's going on here. The first part of this fulfillment is in the Passion Week. Chronologically. Chronologically, in the Passion Week, Jesus fulfills the first three feasts. He's killed on the day of Passover, demonstrating that he is the perfect spotless lamb. He's buried on the day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, like wheat being planted into the ground because he is the bread of life. And do you want to take a wild guess on what day Jesus was resurrected? Anyone? On the day of the Feast of Firstfruits. With his resurrection, Jesus becomes the first to be permanently raised, never to die again. Not that Jesus was the first to ever be raised from the dead, because there were others that were raised from the dead before Jesus. Remember the story of Lazarus? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But do you know what happened to Lazarus in the very next chapter? Maybe you've not noticed this detail, but Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It's, it's one of the funniest things in story, if, if, if it wasn't so sad, okay? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And then just a few verses later, it's talking about the Pharisees, and it says, and the Pharisees plotted to take Lazarus' life. <laughs> you imagine that? Lazarus comes out of the grave. He's like, woo, second chance at life. Let's do this. And then the next whatever, weeks, months, days, however long it was, the Pharisees are like, all right, put him back in the ground. And Lazarus is like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Seriously? Other people were raised from the dead before Jesus was, but Jesus is the first one to not die again. Lazarus was raised, but he died again. So was everybody else that Jesus raised during his ministry. They rose, but then they also died a second time. Jesus, on the other hand, his resurrection is permanent. He rose and he never dies again. He is alive to this day and will be for all of eternity. Then we get to this, the second fulfillment. That's, that's what it is, right? The first is on the Passion Week. He, he's raised on the day of first fruits. The second fulfillment of this is that Jesus is the first to be raised in this way, but it points forward to the rest of the harvest. 
And the rest of the harvest is that the rest of the church is going to be permanently raised, never to die again. That's our future. Eternal resurrection. Eternal life. Because Jesus was first offered to God, there will be an abundant harvest of every person to trust in him for eternal life. If you are in Christ, that's me and you. Tu y yo, familia, that's us. If you're not in Christ, what better opportunity than now to give yourself to him? As we're celebrating, giving our first and our best to him, why not give your heart to him? Talk to somebody here at the church, and, and we'd love to walk you through that. We're, we're celebrating giving God the first and the best because we know that the best is yet to come. It's an expression of trust, an expression of faith, and an expression of gratitude for all that he's done for us up to this point. So, in terms of how we make this practical and how we take this home, a couple of things that I'd like for you to consider. First, I want to publicly commend the members of this church in gratitude for the incredible sacrificial giving that takes place in this congregation. In terms of per capita participation, this is one of the best tithing churches I have ever been a part of in my entire life. That's a fact. I'm not just standing up here making that up. That's true. We may be small, but we are filled with generosity here. Nearly every single member of this church is a regular giver. I cannot tell you how proud that makes me, how thankful I am for that. That is a sacrificial act of obedience and, as we've seen, an act of faith. So I commend you, continue in that. That's a gift of first fruits. What you are doing is giving first fruits. That, that's to give to God out of your paycheck. I applaud you, brothers and sisters. And, and in fact, this goes beyond our walls, right? Th- th- it goes beyond what, what's happening here. There are a number of people who live in other parts of the country who are tuning in every week, and they too are regular givers. People who tune into the live stream and then send their support. If you are watching and that is you, thank you. I love you. Gosh, it means so much to me. I, I, I love all of you guys. Thank you for doing that. That word of gratitude being spoken, I'll, I'll say this. If you are not currently tithing, let this be a great place to start, right? It's a great way to make all of this practical. In the same spirit, I would also encourage you to give God the first fruits of your time. We are all incredibly busy people, right? Every one of us, we are busy, busy people. It is easy to fall into the trap of thinking that we don't have time to spend with God each day. The to-do list that we have is incredibly long. Our responsibilities are endless. But just like we give God the first and best of our time, uh, of our money, we ought to give him the first and best of our time. And in doing so, it's an act of faith that he's going to fill the rest of the hours in the day with everything that we need. And here's the thing. 
the first and best of your time, what, the first fruits of your time, that can look different for everyone. Okay? For me, the way that that looks is when I get to the office at the beginning of my workday each day, I have a chunk of time that I can use on basically whatever. Because okay? I show up early enough to get a head start on what's next. And so I've got a little bit of a buffer where I don't have the kids distracting me. <laughs> don't look at me like that. <laughs> I don't have other responsibilities. I can sit at my desk. I could get started on other things if I want to get a real head start. But I've, I, I've got an opportunity to sit at my desk. I could veg out for a few minutes. But how about instead I give that to God? Okay, this is the best of my time when I can focus the most. This is the time that I give to him. Whatever that looks like for you, figure out what is the best time that I have. Is it at 6 o'clock in the morning? Maybe it is for you. Maybe you get up before your kids and that's the time that, that you have. Maybe you get up before class or work and you, you've got a chunk of time that you can give to the Lord. If that's true, then let, let it be that. Maybe for you it's at 11 p.m., Everybody else has gone to bed. You've got some time then. Whatever the first and best is, give that to the Lord. Use that time to pray. Use that time to read his word. Use that time to worship. The rest of the hours in your day will be much better for it. In every area of life, our time, our talents, our treasures, our everything, whatever it is, whatever it looks like, we are to give God our first and our best for our own good in remembrance of how he's freed us and blessed us and in faithful anticipation of his blessings to come. Let's do that as a celebration, not as an obligation. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the, the promises of your word for the ways in which you show us the abundance of mercy and grace and unconditional love. You pour out your affection. It says in 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. God, I pray that we will live in celebration of the love that you have lavished upon us, the blessings that you've lavished upon us, that we will bring to you our first and our best in every area. God, I pray once again for anybody who is here or is watching on the live stream or listening on the podcast, anyone who has never given themselves to you in the first place. Lord, let tonight be the night where you draw them to yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit to surrender to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To say for the first time, I want to give myself to you. Not just acknowledge that you exist. Not just believe a, a proper set of facts about you. But to offer my heart to you. Lord, if there's anyone in that situation, Lord, I pray that you would draw them. That, that they would reach out to somebody in this church. Or, or they would reach out to someone who was a brother or sister in Jesus Christ. And they would say, walk me through this. Walk, walk me through what it looks like to give my heart to the Lord. And God, I pray that each of us would experience a beautiful conviction. That you would draw us by your grace to convict us where we need conviction.